to Sci-Fi Sidebar. I'm your co-host, Cece. And I'm Peter, your other co-host. Welcome to our episode on Ursula K. Le Guin's Hugo Award winning The Left Hand of Darkness. Peter, how did you like it? Uh... <laughs> uh... It... It's definitely not my favorite we've done. Well, okay, that's fair. We've done a lot of great books, so can't really blame you there. <laughs> Um, I thought it was overall very interesting, mm. but it kind of followed along my general issue with a lot of older sci-fi in that it doesn't give enough detail to be not properly engaging, but like, I, I it didn't give me enough detail about the universe to make me really invested in any way in it. And it okay. didn't follow a very... It, it wasn't very clear in the narrative it set out, I found at times. Interesting. Um, well, it's a part of a whole bunch of books that are all about the ecumen, by my understanding. None of which I've read. But I wonder if you would have enjoyed it more if you had like more background on what was going on. And we're Perhaps. just coming into it totally blind. Yeah, that might be true. But um, I I enjoyed it. I had a hard time getting into it initially, personally. So I found it kind of, it was like too much politicking and too many names I couldn't remember for a while. And then it really, it, it got better for me in Ogren. And then like really picked up for me when it was just Genli and Estevan out on the ice being buddies. <laughs> like that's when that book got got like very good to me and I, I enjoyed it a lot more. So that's maybe like the last third of it, but <laughs> man, it was worth it. I mean it wasn't that long of a book, right? So like <clears throat> um there was sort of a couple hours there where it was a little dry, but in the end I thought it was really enjoyable. All right, that's fair enough. I think overall I had a positive experience. Yeah, I feel that. You're like, it's not a bad book. It's just not necessarily your cup of tea. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's fair. Yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, <laughs> I did very much enjoy the bro time on the ice. It was very good. Especially, it was nice. Yeah. I mean, we can we can maybe talk about that later, I guess. Do you want to talk more about like the setting? Yeah, that seems like it would be a good, you know, hosting way to go about it. That seems like it would be sort of a sane thing to do. <laughs> <coughs> right. Um, so speaking of the overall series, just a fun fact, Ursula K. Le Guin is the one who originated the concept of an ansible, or at least the term ansible. There might have been other people who before suggested spontaneous, fast in the light communication, or I guess instantaneous communication. Um, but it was in the first book of the Ecumen series cycle of books uh, called Rokanon's World. Rokanon's World. Um, so yeah, so it's funny because it's one of those things that like you just sort of see in sci-fi literature. Not everyone calls this device that name, but many people do, and it kind of, it always puts up an antenna for me because I'm like, why isn't that a like a lawsuit? <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, doesn't she own that concept? But then you have, you know, Ender's Game, for example, is a series where it's just the Ansible. That's just what they call that machine. That's what it's called. 
So yeah, I don't know if it's one of those principle. things that's like so pervasive that it's kind of almost part of the public domain just by virtue of everyone knows it as that. Yeah, I think that's possible. I think also it's probably like a very, just like having a faster than light communications device and calling it a thing is probably not a very defendable position. Yeah, but I just feel like it's a unique name. Like it's, it's a, I guess it's supposedly a contraction of answerable. I don't know. It's just, it feels like something that should creatively belong to her. I don't know why it doesn't. This is a um, mystery to me. I mean, it could be... I, I don't know. I don't know, Cece. You don't have the answer. We don't have the answers. <laughs> you never do. Here at Sci-Fi uh, Sidebar Inc., we don't have all the answers. <laughs> we tell you every episode that we're idiots, so... That's true. Expect. <laughs> but no, I just thought that was an interesting tidbit about this universe. I do, I do kind of enjoy, like... I, I could have done with more explanation of the sort of state of the universe and the ecumen and all of that. And you kind of get little bits and pieces. And once again, you fall into this thing that you get, I feel like, a lot in older sci-fi where there are aliens and there are different worlds and different civilizations that don't even know about each other. But they're all human in origin. Yes. And yeah. they, they... I believe they even... Um, alluded to the possibility that Earth, our Earth, was an experiment of some sort. But I definitely think that the um, Gathenians were as well. I don't remember them talking about Terra being a... being a like being an experiment. I do remember yeah, them I, talking about, and it kind of, it, like, there was a chapter or two there where it was like, that was all I was talking about. Yeah, he that's was, like, the prevailing really hypothesis. Into the idea of this. Yeah. Well, I think that the book was sort of meant to take a a um format of like what's what I'm looking for? Just like a collection of different documents in it to tell this story. So like some of them are mythology, some of them are Genley's perspective, some of them are um Estraven's perspective. And so I, I those ones I I I think that they were sort of meant to be almost his notes, like that he was given by the um the people who made the first the investigators, I think he called them, the people who initially discovered that world and did the initial observations on it. Right. But I, I just I find it interesting that it was thought prevalently in sci-fi at the time. Um, and I mean, it, it, so just to quickly uh, distract from my own statement, she has this wonderful foreword at the beginning of the book. Did you listen to it, Peter? I did listen to it. It was very fascinating. Yeah. And she's very clearly is like, I'm not speculating here, like about the future. What I'm saying is I'm telling a story, a fictional story about the world that we live in now. And so like, she's very clear that she's not saying that, this is how the future will be. This is how, like, we all got where we are, anything like that. She's just trying to tell, you know, a good story that's really realistically about where we are currently. And um, so she probably isn't coming out here and being like, well, I think that humankind was seeded from, like, some origin planet that became really advanced and just eventually started having civilizations everywhere. But the idea that, like, because <laughs> they even talk about evolution. They talk about how the Gathanians 
must be great hypothesizers because they figured out evolution even though they had no like link to the to the simpler animals on their planet. Yeah, there were there no apes no, like, for them to go. These are simple. right. There was no yeah exactly. There were no like human forerunners. Whereas on Earth, on Terra, we have the human forerunners. So like this universe accepts that as the truth, and yet like thinks that I don't know that all life came from that one planet, the Hainish. So I don't know. It's, I found it kind of contradictory and interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... I'm trying to figure out what part of what you just said I want to respond to. <laughs> I said, like, a lot of things. I think I'm gonna... But also, maybe not as many as you would think, given how long I was talking. <laughs> <laughs> so, CJ, that's my specialty. Okay, okay. Saying so little with so much. <laughs> Um, I think I want to talk about the forward. I think that anyone that's trying to understand science fiction the way it is, and definitely the origins, but like really the way modern good science fiction, not like space novels, should read that forward because it it does clearly set out the mindset of a renowned science fiction writer. Yeah. It's- somebody who was at the field at the beginning you know right she was a pioneer in the field she was recognized and she won accolades and she kind of she put forward this forward to say look this is my mindset this is what i wrote and i think it also served the purpose of specifically pointing where people might read the book and go oh that's kind of relatable to today and she's like, no, 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 no. It no, is today. It, it's super relatable It's to super today. relatable on purpose. Well, what's interesting is that this book was written in the 60s. Like, the late 60s. But there are a lot of aspects that are very relatable to 2019, 2020. I mean, in many ways, we haven't come that far from the 60s. <laughs> this is true. But in a lot of social aspects, which are some of the, some of the things that are relatable, we have. So... I don't know. It's it's just it's interesting to me. Although I do I do think that if she wrote that book today, she would have potentially, depending on where she fell, um, written it differently. Because, like, take for example, um, the long way to a small angry planet. They have gender neutral pronouns because they exist in a universe where there are. Um, non-binary aliens i guess essentially and well, there where are aliens also, with more than two genders and right. they, like there's not a really or where it's not immediately apparent to a human where assumptions are rude that sort of a thing right whereas with this one you just find genli as a human who comes from a, like a binary society um as binary as america in the 1960s he uses the like the sort of general he the general he that we use for like god and you know other concepts where it's sort of he rather than they because we don't really have a singular gender neutral pronoun right now i mean the closest we come is it but that's not that has different connotations that are offensive right exactly um so To, to for uh, for I to have used it, it would have dehumanized the people of this world, the right. people of winter, in a way that was 
neither the intention of the writer nor the intention of I. Yeah, he's not trying, like, he might not understand it, but he's not like, oh, this is disgusting and terrible. He's just trying to, like, use language to describe it, basically. And as being a good ambassador, he's trying to find a middle ground between his understanding and his experiences and those of the people he was sent to interact with. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting, though, because they do have... um, it, it's it's only mentioned briefly. I don't know if you caught it, but they talk about how the Gathanian languages have pronouns for like for sexes in animals, by my understanding, and like pronouns for when a person is in Kemmer. Yes. I think so. Like they exist, but we're reading this in Genli's language. So in Genli's language, like I don't know what what pronouns he uses to refer to anyone else outside of it because he never seems to offend anyone by calling like by using he or brother or like all these genderized terms but he does like continue to use that pronouns i guess just as like a translation error yeah i think translation error is probably the best word for that right it's not really like it because because he talks about it he's like oh he he was like female to me you know what i mean like i was looking at a woman when he's talking about somebody that he usually refers to as he so it's not sort of a lack of understanding of what was going on i mean to an extent it was but like he sees it practically he just doesn't really have the language to express it so i wonder if she wrote that today whether she would use like the sort of more common gender neutral pronouns like they or um or do what was done by um the author of the Wayfarer trilogy and like sort of make up her own pronouns to use. But realistically, I don't think Genli would have made up his own pronouns. So I don't know. I think it suits it regardless of the year it was published. You know what I mean? Cause we're seeing it through Genli's perspective. Right. And I think a major part of this book and uh, kind of his realization of his time on the ice, on the ice with Estrovan was kind of his ultimate realization that this is not a planet of men. This is a planet of ambisexual people. Right. And so like and trying to sort of internalize that rather than just be like, yeah, I get it intellectually, but... Right, so he's using he everywhere because as far as he's concerned, he's just on a planet with full of slight, maybe a bunch of men who don't show a lot of traditional male characteristics. Right. Maybe who so. act quote-unquote feminine or who just sort of... Because it's not like everyone's walking around naked all the time. So he doesn't have to constantly like stare at the sort of, I guess, almost vestigial appearance of their genitalia during most of the time. You know what I mean? So like he's not really forced to face it. So in a way, I think it's easier to think of them as effeminate he's for Genley. Yeah, it's a bunch of men with wide hips. exactly who occasionally turn into women a little bit yeah so like it's it i think that's part of the importance of his time on the ice is his mental transition to that and i think that does explain why he just defaults to he yeah i think that's true so i don't know like i don't know if she would have done it differently if she wrote it today but i think that the way she wrote it really works even I, today. I think it very likely would have depended. I think you're right. It would have depended on what side of the arguments she falls on. Yeah. I mean, sci-fi writers usually fall on one side of the argument, but I don't want to make assumptions for Ursula. 
I mean, even now there's multiple sides of the liberal argument. Yeah, that's true too. They, you're right. They usually fall on the more liberal side of things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, I'm this, go like this is the direction of progress or what have you. Right. I'm going to go ahead and guess that the author of the book that's called The First Book of Feminist Sci-Fi <laughs> is going to fall on the liberal side of things. Did she it's write just, that? Did she write that it's the first book of feminist sci-fi? Oh, people called this the first book of feminist sci-fi? Uh, yeah, where did I just read that? I'm, I'm very curious because I that's another thing to talk about on this whole gender yes. topic. Yes. Yes, this, that's what people call this book? Uh, the Left Hand of Darkness was among the first books in the genre now known as feminist science fiction. That is fascinating. Why is it considered that? Do you know? Um, I think, I don't know for sure. At a guess, though, I would consider that because this book kind of, this book made a, not a big deal about it, but it put a place to focus on the different society that could form if these gender stereotypes didn't exist. Like, if we're looking at the society of of Gethin, mm-hmm. we are trying... We're following along with Genli trying to figure out these people, and he's running into a major barrier of understanding. Right. This barrier of understanding, in a large part, is because he is unused to dealing with a society whose rules and whose traditions and people whose motivations are entirely gender-neutral. Yeah, and that's true. I can see this being toted as a, a feminist science fiction book because that's a pretty common argument for, I, I feel, many feminists, the the abolition of traditional gender roles. Yes, you know, that is interesting because I think that my initial like surprise was at the idea that a lot of the the feelings expressed by Genli about gender were pretty regressive. And I sort of had been attributing that to the era in which this book was written. Still keeping in the back of my mind, like, huh, it's interesting that a woman would write that. But I think that what you're saying makes a lot of sense where, like, I can sometimes forget, I don't know if this is a weakness of yours, but I, I myself find myself forgetting that um, just because somebody's the protagonist doesn't mean they're always right. And that doesn't mean that the author always thinks they're right. Yeah, I had so, I did have that mental leap while I was reading this book of, of like kind of disconnecting Genley from being correct. Yeah, being like, well, that's I don't think that you really felt that way, <laughs> oh, Ursula. <laughs> yeah, Ursula, this doesn't seem right, especially when him and um, when he's trying to describe, when he's thinking about what makes a woman and what makes a man, and he's trying to describe that to Estrovan. Yeah, I was he's like having like, a really hard time. I'm like, this isn't very vintage woke of you, Ursula. <laughs> no. No, it's just vintage. <laughs> it's just straight vintage. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess you're right. Like, that's kind of a turning point for him, trying to describe that. Like, that's that whole period of time is when he sort of comes around to the Gathinian way, in a sense, and at least comes to understand it better. And, like, at no point do they... To that unless I missed it point and say huh you know Kelly's really gonna take these lessons and treat women differently <laughs> but like <laughs> <coughs> um but yeah I mean it is acknowledged I mean Genley just sits there and he's like I guess huh I don't know <laughs> I don't know what the difference is I think the one thing he was like um women have different physical characteristics 
That is true. And he was like, kind of hit a wall. <laughs> He's like, they kind of look like pregnant Gathanians. And I'm yeah. tapped. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to take Ursula's word for that one. I have no... I don't, I'm assuming that's what a pregnant Gathanian looks like. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just going to picture a pregnant Gathanian as a woman. Yeah. Um, Maybe a slightly well, yeah. masculine woman. Well, because they breastfeed and everything, too. So they need those female characteristics. That's true. They do. So... I mean, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. But <laughs> so I guess if you're talking about like f- as far as physiological presentation goes, yeah, it probably would be a lot like a pregnant Gathenian with or without baby. Um, <laughs> like a very early pregnant Gathenian. <clears throat> but yeah, no. And then he also he, he makes a point of being like, yeah, well, you don't see a lot of like mathematicians. <laughs> and you're like, come on, Genley. <laughs> yeah, that was why that is. That was very much a <laughs> grasping for straws thing. Yeah, he's like, uh... And to be, to be fair to Gendley, um, Estervain then goes, oh, are they, like, weaker of mind? And Gendley's like, I don't think so. I don't know. I really don't know. And Gendley's like, I've never considered an artist. <laughs> yeah. Why aren't they mathematicians, huh? Could it be societal constructs? Whoa. <laughs> Could these be preconceived gender norms that keep women in the house taking care of children? By God. <laughs> oh my God. But <laughs> I gotta call someone. This is amazing. <laughs> We've had this inter like interplanetary society for fifteen hundred years. Let's do this. Um uh, <laughs> women can finally do math. <laughs> hey guys, great news. <laughs> hey gals, great news. <laughs> guys, I know you're getting really sick of math. Good news. <laughs> we'll just make the women do it. <laughs> and we'll stay home and take care of the kids. Yes. Exactly. We yes. crushed it, guys. <laughs> solve that one right up um yeah i mean this the whole idea of the ecumen is the exchange of ideas and they do have i think one of the um initial investigators uh period like parts of the book was saying that like there is no i mean in githanian society it like is it is like the truly equal society because anyone can have children no one's like expected to have children but also no one is expected not to have children and like they also seem to sort of share children pretty willingly like among the family like if you come from a um like a more established family like potentially your parents could be raising your children and that sort of a thing so like you're not going to be um tied down in the way that traditionally women were by child rearing because yes you're you're pretty much equal partners like the only thing that you see a real difference in is the idea of um like the king having an heir of the flesh so like the king has to bear the child although interestingly the person who bears the child gives them their name did you catch that i don't think i did yeah so in for gathenians if you actually bear the child if it's a child of your flesh then they get your family name but that makes sense i mean that's fair yeah and it's especially fair in in the context of like, hey, <laughs> either of one of us could do this thing. Yeah. I'm gonna do it, so I get to name the kid. You know, I did the work, so <laughs> right, right. Especially because they do have this like pseudo monogamy. Like you could be in a monogamous relationship, but that's also not the only way to like have a family. Not that it is today either, but traditionally it always has been. I, I got the feeling that that was a little more taboo. Like, it wasn't out, you know, it wasn't... Vowing, like, vowing Kemmering? Yeah. 
Well, it's not a legally recognized thing. Right. It's, that is true. it's like a it's like an emotional spiritual thing. Yeah, it's a personal decision. It's not you know, this you're not doing it for tax benefits. <laughs> right. right no totally there are there is no government recognition of it it's just unlike yeah. here where people only do it for tax benefits <laughs> exactly <laughs> it wasn't a personal decision at all we did it for the money <laughs> we just did to screw the government out of more money <laughs> listen it's a good cause <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah no no you're totally right um, I, I don't think that it was taboo so much, but it does seem to always end in tragedy based on the hearth tales that, uh, Genley saw fit to in- include in his little compilation. Yeah. Sorry. I was, I was reading something else. <laughs> cool. At least you're honest. <laughs> I was reading about, apparently, uh, I'm on like a sex and gender dive for this book right now. I was earlier, but, like, I kept seeing the interesting things I didn't see earlier. Okay. So I kept going. I was listening. But apparently <laughs> this book has caught in a lot of criticism from feminist theorists about a homophobe, but regarding what they describe as a homophobic depiction of the relationship between Estervin and I. Uh, interesting. Because they are presented superficially masculine throughout the novel but they never explore physically the attraction between them. Uh, no, it is explored a little and, bit. And Estrovin's death at the end was seen as giving the message that death is the price that must be paid for forbidden love. I, well, I don't think that's true. Although, although, again, that is how all the stories ended. <laughs> with death and tragedy, pretty much, so. Oh, all the tales that were included? Yeah, all the mythologies. I mean, yeah, I think this is a tragic world. It's a pretty tragic like, world. Like, this is a hard world. I, I will say this. Just I want to respond to that homophobic thing. Yeah. I think they talked about it, and Esther was like... Or not Esther, I was like, you know, we both we could have done this, but we decided we needed now, and we didn't want to ruin... We didn't want to risk ruining was our friendship. Well, it is interesting, because that feels like more of eyes hang up than... Estrovins, because I don't get the feeling that it's necessarily going to change much. Like you could go into Kemmer with somebody, or however you would phrase it, and that wouldn't necessarily have to be like a love connection type of a thing. Like it's just sort of, hey, listen, I'm <laughs> I'm at my time. You're you're gonna be at your time in a minute. I'm gonna speed that up. We're both gonna get you know get satisfied and we can move on with our lives like they seem to have a very pragmatic view towards sex but there i mean there is like again there's the romantic side of things where like you can fall in love and have like a person who is always your partner and that's that but it doesn't have to be that necessarily and this is one of the things this is one of the things that genley mentioned a couple times that i took issue with is he was like, well, how am I supposed to, like, be friends with somebody who at any time could turn into, like, a potential lover? I'm like, okay. Jeez. Like, isn't <laughs> like, that just friendship? So I guess you don't see friendship across, like, genders as a thing. And, like, I mean, it does completely ignore the, the gay side of things completely. But, I mean, that's also not really an issue in this book. So it's fine. But, um, yeah, I did, uh, I did think that was... That was like, come on, come on, Genley. 
you don't have any female friends, I guess. Which is funny, because then, at the end of the book, the first person out of the ship is a female. And he's like, oh, hey, it's her. But it's not like, oh, I'm sexually attracted to her. It's like, oh, it's it's this girl from my ship. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, man, thank God I haven't seen a true woman in month, in years. Oh, yeah, let's go. Yeah, it's like not, it's not anything like that, which is actually, in a way, kind of surprising. And, but maybe and Genley nice. got a little, Genley got a little, uh, I guess. A little what, Cece? I'm trying to think of the word. <laughs> a little neutered, like, during his time with the, uh, with the Gathanians. A little less in Kemmer. Uh, I mean, that's why they call him a pervert, because he's in, in Kemmer all the time. But maybe that kind of died down, because he never exercised it. I mean, that's true. I, I don't know what to say. Yeah, you're right. Or maybe I mean, he is a secret feminist. <laughs> or maybe he's a secret feminist. <laughs> he's a 60s feminist, which is to say he says a lot of problematic things, but generally doesn't see women only as sex objects. <laughs> but he does, though, because he's like, I can't be friends with him if we could fuck. <laughs> it's like, That's true. He does say that, basically. <laughs> he pretty much says that. <laughs> it's basically a quote. <laughs> It is interesting, though, that he decides never to have sex with any of the people he's with, like even Estrovin, even when Estrovin's a woman. I, I mean, I can almost see how it would be harder to do that with somebody you knew, Yeah, like especially if you, just, if you had been thinking of them as a man. Right. If you just show up to, what do they call them? Uh, camera camera house? Yeah. Yeah. If you just rolled up to a camera house and there was like, all right, let's go. And then you found someone that was already in the feminine camera. Yeah. I could see it happening. Yeah, sure. I mean, also, though, that seems, first of all, he's probably known and, like, is just described as a pervert. <laughs> so, like, maybe people don't want to, you know, copulate Couple. with him. Yeah. yeah. Couple's a better word. Uh, <laughs> Copulate's sort of a rough word. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, sort of a bad word. Not, like, for its inappropriateness, but for its just taste. It just, it just doesn't have good mouthfeel. Yeah, the mouthfeel is very poor. Flacking. Um, <laughs> So like that would be so maybe he just couldn't. Also, I will say, going around being known as the pervert, and then like <laughs> trying to, even I mean, trying necessarily to try to, but like, I don't know, letting your guard down and letting that happen seems like poor ambassadorial things. That's probably true. Like that's probably true. Come on, man. <laughs> I mean, but still though, he's a man in his thirties. And, like, just given the era, I guess I'm surprised it didn't come up. I mean, you know, his probably 30s, would have come up. The male sexual prime? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess. Like, he's not 17, but, like, he's not old, is my point. No, he's not old, but, like, he's also not, you know, a teenager. Yeah. That's true. I would teenagers expect him are some perverts. level of self. That's true. All teenagers are perverts. <laughs> That's just science. They're definitely in camera all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, puber- what is puberty if not a long version of camera? <laughs> it's very true. Um, I would say, I bet that if a man had written this book, though, it would have come up. Oh, almost definitely, because men are perverts. Men are <laughs> men are also perverts. No, but like in the sixties, we've talked about like gratuitous sex in the fifties or sixties sci-fi before. Oh yeah, Hyperion. Uh, Hyperion and um, oh god, what was the one we just did? Ringworld. Oh Ring yeah. Ringworld. Are you with me? Yeah, there's no, no, a lot I, of that. I was trying to remember like the parts you were talking about. <laughs> it's every part. <laughs> no, that's right. I, every I time thinking... they like touch down, they're like, "All right, we're gonna go bone. <laughs> Be right back." <laughs> or like how they described women. 
Yeah, and now Louis like, hey, I was going to rape Nessus if I didn't have a woman along. We're all like, whoa, Louis, that's not cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my. Yeah, so thanks, Ursula, for sparing us that. I'm glad that they didn't put that shadow on on dear, dear Genley. He's not the most enlightened boy, but he tries. <laughs> he just, he just kind of wants to be better. He's just not sure how. <laughs> he just doesn't know how. But it is... So, okay, so Genley and Estrevan. I'm not sure that I ever truly understood why he distrusted Estrevan so much. He kind of, he, he talks about it being because Estrevan, because of Estrevan's androgyny, but literally everyone on the planet is androgynous and he seems to have an easier time with other people than with Estrevan. So what's his problem? No, sexual tension. Is it sexual tension? I'm pretty sure they talked about, he talked about that, like when he was having his realization. He's like, maybe why these things have been so hard is that I have sexual tension. <laughs> what did he talk about that? How did I miss him being like, this is sexual tension? I, I don't think he actually said sexual tension, but like, it was when he was... <laughs> well, that's what Susan. You gotta read between the lines. <laughs> no, it was when he was talking about uh, his, like, having his realization. Or he, like, it was like he turned and he saw Estrovan, and, like, Estrovan was looking at him, and Gunley's like, He's looking at me kind of like a woman would look at me. <laughs> um, I think he literally said, like, full of emotion. And I was like, well, that's not great. <laughs> you know, unlike men. <laughs> unlike men who stare at you with cold, hard eyes <laughs> all the time. Never show their feelings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, I'm glad you so well understand men. Yes, exactly. So... I, he, like, he talked about it then. And he was like, maybe why we've had so many issues and we've been able, unable to, like come together and be friends is this tension of like whether or not or like trying me trying to deny this part of him or something oh yeah he does say that he definitely does say some things and i led me to immediately think about sexual tension okay so that's interesting so like when he's still in the beginning parts of the book and estrovin's kind of the only gathanian he's close with um he he talks about, like, kind of being annoyed when Estrovan acts, quote-unquote, womanly. And so I do wonder, maybe maybe that is, like, the sort of almost homophobic side of it, where he's like, I don't want to feel these feelings about a man, so I'm just going to, like, super suppress them and be angry at him all the time. <laughs> be like, this isn't uh, trustworthy. You make me feel weird. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. But, like, he's not a man. I mean, I say he's not a man. I'm, I'm just using the pronouns Genley used, guys. Don't, don't yeah, at me. Yeah, we're doing the best we can. <laughs> but like, Estrovin is not a man, so like, it's not—it's not even a gay thing. It's just that like you are finding yourself to be attracted to this person who can be a woman, and like you could have sex with, but you just don't want to fully allow acknowledgement of that side of him. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that I—I I could see. All right, I will. I wanted to play devil's advocate. Kind okay, Gentley's advocate. Genley's advocate, yes. <laughs> um, if Genley is just a bog standard heterosexual guy, a what standard? Bog standard. I'm not familiar with that term. Just normal. It just means normal. Okay. <laughs> it's just a Got heterosexual it. dude. Yeah, sure. And he comes across this, you know, androgynous person mm-hmm. who sometimes shows feminine character what he considers feminine characteristics and 
has like a personality that Genli finds attractive. But Genli still hasn't made the mental leap from the two sexes of the society he comes from to the single non-sex of this single prevalent non-sex of this planet he's come to. Mm. He could be made very uncomfortable by the ideas that he's having these like non-platonic feelings towards this individual who he thinks of because it's easiest for him as a man even though this person fully isn't a man right but i think that what he sees is is that he sees that estrovin is not a woman therefore estrovin is a man right and i think that that could make you very uncomfortable if you Mm. just if you were fully heterosexual you had no uh, homosexual tendencies whatsoever um, right. He's like in his 30s, so he's very comfortable with who he he's. We can assume he's very comfortable with where he's at. His identity's probably pretty set. Right. He's figured out who he is and what he wants. But now he's meeting these people who don't really fit neatly into either of the categories of, apparently, potential lovers or potential friends that Gemini sees <laughs> in the world. <laughs> and and that, that makes him uncomfortable. Uh, I don't think it's fantastic, but also I could completely empathize with that idea. Well, it's just culture shock, really. Like, I don't think that Genli should be vilified because he had culture shock. Right. I, I don't, I don't, I like, I hesitate even to have given it the label homophobia, but I, I think that, because it's not necessarily homophobic to be like, I'm a straight man, I don't want to have sex with another man. Like, that's just you being a straight man. That's just called having a preference. But like, or that's called having a sexual identity even. But yeah, so I think that it's not, it doesn't speak ill of him. It's just like, it's the hardest thing to grasp as a member of the ecumen from any world except Gethin, about Gethin. Yes. So that's valid, I would yeah. say. So I think that that is, I, don't know, I think that, that could explain that relationship between them and why he has such an issue trusting him. Yeah, maybe. I, maybe just because there was an attraction or because he was the one that he was close to. Um, but he couldn't really ever figure out how to treat him or how to read him. Right, there were feelings he could not identify, and that made him uncomfortable. Yeah. Poor, oh, man, poor Estrovin, though. He's just, just doing his best. <laughs> yeah. I felt so sad, um, but also very happy when they were on the ice. And Estrovin's like, why, why won't you believe in anyone... Why, like, why will you believe in anyone except me? And, like, why won't you accept that I believe in you? I'm like, oh, Estrovin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's fair. Estrovin's done a lot. Estrovin has literally, literally gave his life for Genli's cause because he believes in it so fiercely. Yeah, because he believes that his world would benefit greatly, not just his nation, but his world, in joining right. the Ecumen. Yeah, so that, I mean, that leads into this idea of patriotism that I know you you wanted to talk about. So, go on. <laughs> start talking about it. So, <laughs> I was going to start talking about it, but I was like, no, no, I'll let Peter go first. <laughs> I think This is that... your topic, Peter. Take it away. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I think that the, the overarching idea of patriotism in this book is something that is kind of important to take to heart, let's say. Especially, let's think about the it's time that this was written. It's a good walkaway lesson. Like, this was written in, like, the late 60s. Right. And then 
I mean, that was obviously a time of major turmoil and strife internationally. Right. And, and lots of different ideas about what patriotism meant. Right, and a lot of mistrust of people that were patriotic to other countries. Right. And if you... What I found very good about this book and about specifically Estrovin's interpretation of patriotism is that I think Estrovin's conflict with uh, his mad king and, you know, the country as a whole, his, his conflict with uh, Carhide was that their idea of patriotism was exclusively... Well, it was nationalistic. Yeah, it was very nationalistic. It was Carhide first... Screw everyone else, and and that's just how it works. Well, also Tybee specifically kind of rose to power on that platform. So Estrovin is demonized because he decides that his idea of patriotism is not so much hating the other major power, Ogren. It is kind of loving Carhide and his people, and loving his planet. And right, it's chooses... patriotism without jingoism. Yeah, exactly. And, and his idea that patriotism does not necessitate hate of other people. You don't right. have to hate other people because they're patriotic for a different country. It is interesting, though, given the the pretty prevailing theme of this book of duality and, like, one thing cannot exist without the other thing. So, like, how can you be patriotic for this and not patriotic against that? It's sort of a denial of that. Yes. But I think with the way Estrovin saw it is, especially if you look at his actions, he acted on behalf of Carhide, what he thought was best for Carhide, which was join the Ecumen. Right. He thought it would be best for Carhide and for Gethin as a whole to uh, you know, follow Genli and join the Ecumen and gain this greater communication, understanding, and yada, yada, yada. And when he failed to do that in Carhide, he went over to Orgrin and tried to get them to do it too. Right, because he knew that if Orgrin did it, Carhide would have to follow. Right, and so never did he act against the interests of Carhide. Right. At least as far as he was concerned. He acted for the benefit of Carhide, just maybe also helped Orgrin. Because Yeah, and that was fine. Right, and that's fine to him because he was still supporting his nation you could support other people in pursuit of that goal right he didn't have anything against Orgrin really either he just they just were others you know what I mean like he didn't have a beef with them right exactly they were just else the only personal issue he had with them or at least with their relationship with Carhide as far as we know was the arguments over the Sinoth Valley but that those problems he had just as much with the leadership in Carhide, who were continuing to fan the flames. Right, that was mostly anger at the situation. That was just pacifism. <laughs> right, that, that was generally... I don't even say it's pacifism. I think Estevan would probably fight if he had to. I think that was don't be a dickism. Don't, yeah, don't he's like, is this really worth it? Yeah, actually. like, is this the fight? Is this the hill you want to die on? Is kind of Estevan's motto. Yeah. I'm also having a hard time. So I, I found also a BBC adaptation um, that was like two hours long of this story. Um, and I had seen that it had like a female narrator for Estevan. And I thought that that would be kind of interesting because like usual, we listen to this on audiobooks and we have sort of the same or at least a very similar 
like gruff male voice for Asherman's parts as we do for uh, for uh, Genley's parts. And so, it, not unlike when we were dealing with um, uh, the audiobook for Murderbot Diaries. Murder. Yes, thank you. Um, it's sort of like color the experience. So anyway, I was listening to this. I didn't get all the way through it before um, we had to record, but. I'm like starting to <laughs> have all these spots where it sort of bleeds in where I'm like, was that a part of the real story? Or was that just a part of this adaptation? Or was it something I missed? So if I get story details wrong, that is why. <laughs> just disclaimer. That's funny. Um, but yeah, I, I thought, yes, I liked, I liked Eshevin's patriotism very much. I think that it is the right kind of patriotism. Not to get too controversial. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like, it's the kind of patriotism that I wish this earth had because like, okay, so think of like the biggest worldwide problem right now, which I would argue is climate change. Um, And I think many others would argue with me that it is climate change. Like if you are concerned, so say you're an Australian and you're concerned about the bushfires or, or, and, or the Great Barrier Reef, like two ecological disasters that are happening at least in part as a result of climate change and you have lobbied and lobbied and lobbied within australia for them to pass legislation to protect the environment and it's not working doesn't it make sense to go to then the un or other countries and fight for that there because it's all one planet right it's all the same cause right shouldn't so like shouldn't and, and, really, when you move progress in the world, everyone else follows eventually. Yes, and, and really everyone benefits. Right, exactly. So, like, if, and that's part of why nobody wants to freaking pass climate protection legislation, because that puts them at a quote-unquote disadvantage, where they're more restricted, but everyone benefits. But, like, hey, if you get freaking climate protections in China, everyone's going to be better off. The whole planet. It's not just China that benefits. Right. And, I mean, that is kind of exactly what's going on here. Estrovin is trying to convince anyone, his country, Ogren, anyone, to join the Ecumen. Because that would benefit the planet as a whole. Right. And it, it is the exact same idea. And you're right. That's not, it's not, not patriotic to, or even traitorous to Australia to go and argue for climate change elsewhere. Because mm-hmm. your efforts in Australia have fallen on deaf ears. Right. You're like, fine, you won't listen to me, I'll go elsewhere. Exactly. People don't really do that. And I understand, because you want your country to be better. I get that impulse, I really do. But Believe you know, me, we're Americans. We can appreciate we, that. We can appreciate the I wish we were better impulse. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, and I'm, I'm not saying it, I don't know anything about Australia. <laughs> Australia's policies. They might have very progressive climate protection policies, but... I'm just using it as an example. I yeah, I got you. Don't at me, Australia. <laughs> oh, you know all our Australian listeners are gonna at you. <laughs> hey, you don't know. Our current checker doesn't tell us where in the world they are. That's true. Our Spotify one does. Oh, it does. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll have to find out if we have any Australians on the on the um, <laughs> on the I guess roster. Hit us up there. On the roster. Oh, definitely roster. <laughs> That's oh my god! What I it's feel like called. we've talked about about two things, and we're already really deep in. I want to talk about Orgrin. So okay. you can definitely feel like the Stalinist 
influence there, right? Like oh, that is yeah. a Soviet Russia oh, story. That, yeah, for sure. I I found it interesting though that um, Genli talked about uh, Orgarin as quote unquote enlightened because it was more technologically advanced. Um, and he's like, eh, yeah, they're, they're like, I, I, I guess, and it was, I suppose it wasn't just their technical advances, it was also, like, the fact that everyone had a job and all that stuff, but it also definitely gave me the heebie-jeebies with all of, like, the papers stuff that kept happening. The um, papers, the, papers. uh, the work. <laughs> The yeah. work camps. Well, yeah, we, this was even before the work camps. Oh, okay. so it was kind of like, mm, this place seems like a lot. But okay. Um, yeah, like the registration, the, oh, everyone gets a visit from the inspector thing. Like, yeah, they seem really caught up on their own progress, I guess. Yeah. But I just, I feel like we think about, so there, there's definitely a lot of ways in which you look at that and you're like, oh yeah, that's like Soviet Russia for sure, where on the surface, hey, it's great. Everyone's got a job. We're all contributing. But then like... The second your faction falls out of favor, you end up in a gulag. And it really is because it's like the North. And I think the term voluntary farms or whatever was like actually taken from the history books here or the present books. If yeah, at the time it was the present books. <laughs> yeah, the current books. <laughs> the newspapers, let's just say. But uh, I feel like we think of it, and I, I don't know if this is inaccurate. It might be. But I always think of the Soviet bloc as having been sort of lagging behind the U.S. in terms of, like, comforts. Like, obviously there was the space race and there were lots of ways that they were technologically our match. But, like, in terms of everyday comforts, I didn't think of the Soviet Union as having very many of them compared right. to America. Um, yeah, the, a- the so average person that- didn't have a whole lot of... You know, they didn't have the, the best things. Right, yeah. Like, all of the sort of technological push was used for, like, the arms race, the space race, all of that. L- not so much for the comforts, which argue people will argue is due to the fact that we had capitalism. And so private companies were incentivized to create modern amenities because they would sell. Um, right. So I thought it was interesting that the country with the better amenities was also the sort of communist um, analog. Did you pick up on that? Did we know that the better amenities was for everyone? That's, yeah, that's, that was my sort of caveat to me. Yeah. I was like, well, he was in like a castle. (laughs) Yeah. He was like chilling with the, uh, with the commensals. Yeah. And so, but the fact is, he was hobnobbing with the elite in, um, in the Russia in. analog. Right. Like that, so it makes some sense. Like, just as I'm sure they've got great amenities in North Korea. <laughs> so exactly for for the rich and, and famous. But the point is that they didn't have those technologies at all in Carhide, as okay, far as yes. as far as Genley's experience could show him. Where he wasn't quite as elite in Carhide, but he still hung out with the, a lot of the elite and, like, knew them. I am willing to put that more towards... Because even the uh, Orgarin uh, commensals... I have to think about that word every time I say it. Commensals or Orgarin? Orgarin. Um, so I was listening to another podcast about this, and it messed me up when they were like, I think that's a, uh, <laughs> that's like a, uh, repronunciation of Oregon. 
because <laughs> Ursula K. Le Guin lived in Oregon. I'm like, oh man, now I can't get that out of my brain. <laughs> so the commensals or- of Oregon. <laughs> Go on. Uh, I remember them talking about how like they went out of their way to do the to give him these these um, amenities. Like I don't think those were normal. Not that I don't think like they could have them if they wanted to, but it just wasn't a thing. I mean, the people of Gethem were sturdier and more attuned to the cold, and their lifestyle didn't require them to come home and like get nice and toasty every night, up to <laughs> Genli's standards. They didn't have hot showers, like that just wasn't a thing. So I think that what happened in Ogren wasn't necessarily an example of them having the better technology. I bet if Karhad had wanted to do those things or was so motivated to do them for Genli, they would have or they could have. That's just, they weren't going to change their way they conducted themselves and they expected Genli to conduct himself in the same way that they did uh, rather than pander to his needs. Which is another reason Eshterman is so special because Eshterman was always very aware of Genli's, like, physiological shortcomings. Well, he was very aware of his physical needs, of course. <laughs> yes. No, but he was though when they were when they were out on the ice. He's like, I don't know what your limits are, man. Because Genley gets all mad at him because he feels like he's being patronized, probably by a woman. Like <laughs> that's that's sort of the experience of Genley, it seems. And um, and Estevan's just like, listen, I don't know, I don't know what you can handle, but I'm pretty sure it's less cold than us, and you're less hardy than us. So I'm just doing my best here because you're not gonna tell me when you've had enough. Yeah, he's like, that's fair. Okay. <laughs> he's like, actually, I, I do get where you're coming from. I'm sorry. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> but I, I, I can totally see that with like a sort of classically macho man not telling you when like enough is enough. And you're like, well, I'm just going to decide that's enough because you're not going to give me any clues. So. <laughs> yeah. So I can understand kind of where he's coming from there, where Astrovet's coming from. I can also, you know. I uh, appreciate Genli not wanting to, like, even from a macho man standpoint, he might just, like, not want to be the person that limits the trip. Yeah, no, I totally got that. I've definitely experienced that. Yeah. Um, Alright, so what else do we want to cover? I think we have covered the major topics. Um, so here's a question. Okay. Do you think Estrovin's tale is the same as that first hearth tale where the brothers swore Kemmering? And then the one killed himself and the other one, like, had to run out into the ice until he almost died. You mean, like, is that a, Is that what happened, a, basically, to, to Estervin? I think it's similar to... I'm not sure if it's exactly the same. Because he definitely had heartache about his brother. Yes. It was... It was not outright stated, but definitely implied. Like, I don't know how... Um, how... Uh, Genli made this leap, but when he met Estrovin's son at Estrovin's hearth, then um, he was like, oh, I knew incest was like, okay, I just didn't know that um, Estrovin had done it. And then he also had Asha, who said that, um, or to whom Estrovin said, like, well, you were right to break the vow because you knew that the vow I gave you was false. Because I guess there's this idea for them that they can only vow Kemmering once. Yes, they did talk about that. 
Right. So, I don't know. It just seems like something to that effect happened. And Estevan's brother was dead, so. Yeah, the person you vowed Cameron to died, but that doesn't release you from Cameron. Right. So, I don't know. What an it, it just, society. it seems. Yeah, it like is they, an interesting society. And they didn't have a formalized idea of marriage. They had a traditional, like, soci- sociological one of Kemmering, but it wasn't, like, a legal status. Right. But they took it... I'm not going to say took it more seriously, but it was a much more sacred act. Most people take marriage pretty seriously, but even those that do, I mean, like, if your spouse dies, it's generally accepted that if you find someone compatible... No one's going to look at you twice for remarrying. Know, remarrying and moving on with your life. Even Catholics. Even Catholics, yeah. Yeah, your spouse <laughs> the has to die. The most conservative vis-a-vis marriage. Listen, your spouse ha- does have to die. Yes. And you can't However. kill them. <laughs> actually, no, I don't Although, think- actually, I think that if you kill them, you can still get remarried. Yeah, I don't think that's specifically mentioned. <laughs> you can't kill them for other reasons. That breaks other Catholic laws. But technically, death did you part, so... So you're good, I guess. <laughs> it's weird. That was so a pretty big loophole. So I guess you're free? <laughs> wow, I never thought about this. Albert, run. <laughs> I see his shadow is moving. <laughs> He's preparing himself. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> um, that part I'm leaving in there. I thought that Albert was like creeping around as we were talking about this. <laughs> Um, anyway, Just checking so I, in. I thought that was pretty cool. Or I thought that was pretty odd about how, like, seriously they took Kemmering. But also it wasn't, like, a legal thing. Yeah, but I guess in a way, it's nice, right? Like, <laughs> do you think that y- one could argue that marriage is cheapened by the legal side of things? Like, that there are other motivations to be married? Um... Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think I don't think, like, necessarily... I think it's very few people's first thoughts. Right. I don't, I don't think that most married people are doing it just for tax benefits, for tax although benefits. there are many people who are. Um, but... Gotta get those tax <laughs> benefits. Right. But, like, I, I do wonder if that's almost why a lot of people have sort of turned away from marriage as an institution and been like, eh, it doesn't really mean anything except, like, legal status. Because, like, I already know that I'm going to spend my life with you. Um, so that's that's all we need. They've outcome, basically. I mean, yeah, Although right. I don't, I don't think that that is taken as seriously as it is taken in um, Gathanian culture. Yeah, I mean, but, Gathanian culture is taboo if you break camera. Right. Like, that's and you can note. never vow camera again and all that. That's accepted. Right. It's, it's taboo if you break camera unless it's your sibling. <laughs> Which because they're like, yes, you have to break Kemmering. Which is just an interesting dynamic to toss in there. Like, yeah, you can have a little incest. Only but... t- just a little bit. <laughs> but then you're done. Then you're cut off, man. What? Yeah, crazy kids. Just a little bit of incest. <laughs> just one, one child of incest and then you gotta do something else, okay? <laughs> or someone else. Hey. 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 <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway. Yeah, that was weird. You're right. I, I kind of didn't put those dots together. That, like, you couldn't... That's... I don't know. Right. Like, about, about the uh, the Val and Kemmering with siblings. Oh, yeah, no. They, they mentioned that, like, a couple of times. You can... You can... Okay, you can have... I, I forget if Kemmering is, like, only you for can go the, into the Val. You can go into Kemmer with your sibling, 
But if you bear a child, then you have to stop. Yes. If either of you bears a child, then that relationship is over. They're like, okay, one incest child per coupling, and then, then you're cut off. Oh that, that is the law of the land. That's basically the only regulation on Kemmering, actually, it seems. It does seem so. Uh, okay. So on that note. <laughs> oh, you know what I thought was really funny? Yes. This is one of those things. When they were talking about the king bearing children in his old age, mm-hmm. it was so funny when, I think Eshman was talking about this. He's like, yeah, the old men were just gathered together, you know, talking about how like, they can't believe he's having a kid at his age. <laughs> <laughs> like the catty old men. That is true. <laughs> that was really funny. That is very good. I enjoyed it. Anyway, on that light note, I think we should call this one a wrap on Left Hand of Darkness. Yeah, I think it was a good discussion. Hey. Let's have our post. <laughs> let's have our traditional post podcast summary of our own discussion. CC, <laughs> do, do you think we did good? <laughs> I mean, were, I had a good time. If you were to rate this on Apple Podcasts, would you give it a four out of five or a five out of five? Five out of five. No every lower time. options are available. All the time. <laughs> oh man, no, um, no, but I enjoyed it. Should we? So our next episode will be our anniversary episode. Yes, after two years of this bullshit. <laughs> can you believe it? I sure can't. On one <laughs> on one twenty twenty twenty. Yeah. That's here. when we will release our episode on The Emperor's Blades by Brian Stavely. Another foray into fantasy for us. Yes, we waxed poetic about it on episode 38, so just bounce back so if you want to hear about it. If you're curious, listen to the end of that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but it's what's like the episode after, after that going to be, Peach? Uh, the episode after that is going to be a return, our annual return, to <laughs> uh, the universe of OSC. Oh, okay. We are going to come back and listen to, or read, however we choose to consume the media, <laughs> Xenocide. Oh, good. It's been a while since I've read Xenocide. Yeah, it's been a minute. I'm excited. Yeah, I am, I'm looking forward to it. Also, I think we... I really like Xenocide because it dives way more into Descalada. Yeah, it really... Yeah. Speaking of it, it's just like, oh yeah, then there's this like parasitic virus thing. Yeah, we finally and... <laughs> get to talk about the specifics, the mechanics of Descalada. <laughs> Buckle up, kids. It's going to be the first 35 minutes. <laughs> the people are loathsome. The sci-fi is great. Okay, let's go. <laughs> That's how I remember feeling about it. Maybe I'll, I'll feel differently this time. The biology is made up not. and the people don't matter. <laughs> no, but great book. Great series. I'm into it. Good yeah, job. I can't Good wait. Pick. All right, cool. So that will be coming out. On the first Monday of February, that is February 3rd. Okie doke. Well, we got a lot of reading to do in the next four weeks, Peach. Yeah, that's a lot of audio hours. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> let's get going. I gotta go read. Right now, I'll I gotta go to right now. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, well, thank you guys so, so much for listening. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. If you have anything to add to our discussion, please email us at uh, nothing network at gmail.com. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. How do I not remember? We do this every month. I guess you, you say it once a month. That's not that often. <laughs> That's not that often. Or uh, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash sci-fi sidebar or facebook.com slash the signifying nothing network or on Twitter at sig nothing net. Dan you crushed it. 
I know. It's just I didn't want to stop once I had the momentum. You really need to make up the ground, lost ground. <laughs> we forgot our email address. <laughs> um. Yeah. Anything else, Peach? No, that wraps it, sis. All right. Uh, well, this has been Sci-Fi Sidebar from the Signifying Nothing Network. A tale told by idiots. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. See you in a few weeks. <laughs>